As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keen and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business app. Tony Capuano, President and CEO of Marriott International. Things have been pretty upbeat. Does it continue or does it sort of see an end date? Do people start pushing back against the cost? I don't think so. I mean, we what we've really seen the last couple of years is the resilience of travel. And we've seen it across segments and across borders. Uh, when we reported earnings at the end of the first quarter, we saw recovery across every segment. Of course, leisure continued to be strong. It was the leisure segment that brought us out of the, the pandemic. But group has been remarkably strong. In fact, when we look at the remaining three quarters of the year, we're up 26% year over year in group revenue. And business transient, many had... Uh, predicted sort of the demise of business travel. But you made the point. Increasingly, folks are recognizing or reminding themselves of the power of getting in front of their clients, the importance of immersing new employees in their company culture. And as a result, we're seeing steady quarter over quarter improvement in business transient demand as well. Is it everywhere for business or places like, say, San Francisco not seeing any kind of revival because of some of the outflow there? Well, certainly markets like San Francisco are seeing slower recovery. But even there, I was listening during the break to Scott Kirby's comments. This this phenomenon of blended trip purpose, I think, serves markets like San Francisco really well. This idea that through the pandemic, more and more travelers learned they can work from almost anywhere. Where we really saw this in the data is we look at recovery by day of the week. And what was remarkable is the two days of the week that recovered most rapidly were Sunday and Thursday, which pre-pandemic were really shoulder days. And what that tells us is with increasing frequency is business and group travelers are tacking on a couple leisure days pre and or post trip. And that really has the potential to help markets, even like San Francisco, which have some leisure appeal. Peter, I see you nodding. You do that too? Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. I mean, I, I try not to, quote unquote, take many days off because you can work from your hotel room for an hour or two. We've done some Bloomberg interviews from hotel rooms when been on the road. So you can do a lot, I That's think, exactly and you set right. up and you get these extended stays. And especially with the air travel, as you pointed out earlier, sometimes is a bit painful. It's much easier if you're going to go somewhere for four nights instead of just two nights or these day trips. So we try and do much of that. I think it makes perfect sense. And that was interesting about the Sundays and Thursdays. Well, but how much are you able to increase pricing then? based on the cost all in of traveling, which has gotten incredibly Yeah, so high. I mean, compression drives pricing. And so what we see is in leisure destinations and some of the urban destinations that have a strong leisure orientation like New York, we see a lot of compression. And as a result of that compression, we see strong pricing power. In a market like a Chicago or a San Francisco where there's less compression, the pricing power is not as strong. 
Are there markets that you're seeing expand much more dramatically? I know that we were talking about, for example, in Florida, how much hotel prices, and I know experience uh, from experience that when yeah. I've tried to go visit family down there, it's a new experience when it comes to the cost of it. I'm wondering, though, is that continuing, or are you starting to see in leveling off there? You're seeing a bit of leveling off, but to the benefit of some of the international destinations. So just this morning, I was reading some statistics. If you look at... Um, outbound U.S. to Europe uh, airline bookings for the summer, they're up nearly 50% year over year. And what that suggests is a lot of U.S. travelers who might have gone to destinations like South Florida or Southern California last summer, with increasing frequency, they're going to France and Italy and Greece. And so that's maybe eliminating a little of that compression pressure in South Florida, which will moderate pricing a bit. How much are you trying to cater to the high end, which has been perhaps recovering even more? So luxury has been exceedingly strong, but we have a portfolio of 31 brands across multiple price tiers and price points. So uh, in the luxury tier, we continue to see pretty uh, strong pricing power, um, but that's just one tier that we operate in. In fact, just last month, we acquired a brand called City Express, which signaled our entry into mid-scale for the first time, which is now the lowest price tier that we operate in. Peter, I'm wondering from your perspective, if you've been seeing a drop off with respect to the housekeeping, some of the other amenities around uh, the experience of, of staying. I have not, actually. I've really enjoyed it. I think we'll continue. I had a great trip down in Argentina. We did stay at one of your hotels Thank as well you. as other places. <laughs> oh, uh, man. You but, should, like, pay him <laughs> off before and, coming in. You know, what, what does strike me, and we've been talking about, is, is are you seeing resurgence in Asia travel, too, or travel to Asia? That's something I've been hearing a little bit about. Yeah, we are. the um, and, and you almost have to look at it, China and the balance of Asia. Um, Ch mainland China has fully recovered. Um, uh, but again, driven largely by domestic Chinese travel. Uh, international uh, air, uh, airline seats into mainland China are only about 40% recovered to where they were pre-pandemic. Uh, but the balance of Asia-Pacific, particularly markets like Japan, uh, Thailand, are booming right now. In fact, uh, I was looking at some statistics. Somebody asked me a question about what are the most popular summer destinations. And the list that I looked at, some of the destinations you would expect, Italy, France, Greece, but Japan was in the top five. Are there any markets you're getting out of? No, well, we we uh, suspended all our operations in Russia a couple of years ago. Okay, um, but other than extreme circumstances like that, no, we operate in 138 countries today, and in our 500,000 room pipeline, there are another 20 new countries. To build on Peter's question, there is this issue of doing business in China, and we mm -hmm. talk to every executive about how complicated that is as an American company going into uh, the biggest rival right now economically. How much can you operate freely there? How much conviction do you have in uh, the fact that the Chinese Communist Party will allow you to do your business? So our business model, I think, serves us well there. We have 8,500 hotels globally. We only own 20 of those physical assets. So our business model is one of principally managing and franchising hotels. Of the roughly 500 hotels we have in China today, almost the entirety of that portfolio is owned by Chinese companies. And so I think that serves us well, even against the backdrop of some of the complexities of doing business. Before we let you go, how much longer can this trend of YOLO and let's travel around the world really last? 
I, you know, I don't see it ending anytime soon. I think there was pre-pandemic a shift away from consumption of hard goods towards investment and experiences. And if anything, the pandemic served as an accelerant and, and caused that, that trend to spread across generations. Tony Capuano of Marriott, thank you so much for being with My us. Pleasure. Really appreciate Great it. Great to be back. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Bank of America's Michael Gapin weighing in on the Fed's path forward, writing, quote, The May jobs report is a particularly difficult one for the Fed to parse coming out of the May meeting. We argued that the Fed was inclined to stay on hold in June and the onus would be on the hawks to justify a hike. We think the May jobs report is just soft enough to justify a hold, but perhaps not just uh, soft enough to justify staying on hold for a long period of time. Michael Gapin, U.S. economist at Bank of America Securities, joins the table of economists here. So can you give us a sense of what the threshold is now for them to stay on hold? Well, I think you need to see some material softening in in the data. I think they've certainly communicated they'd prefer to skip. And yes, I think that there was enough mixed messages in the employment report where they could do that if they they want to. Personally, I think the establishment report still gives the better signal. There's probably some sampling error in that household survey. But there's resilience in the labor market, as you mentioned, the resilience in the consumer, as you mentioned, and some stickiness in inflation. And if the risk backdrop is diminishing and bank stress is more or less in stasis, then their communication should shift back in in the direction of of pushing the policy rate higher. That's probably the debate that, that they will be having next week. And I know that Laura is going to uh, jump in here with a number of questions, but I'm curious how high they can go, whether the market is accurately reflecting that perhaps it's another quarter basis point hike, but it's not going to be that significant. It's not going to materially change the outlook in terms of the benchmark for the Fed. Well, I do think in, in back in March, before we had the bank's drafts pop up, I do think that they were going to guide markets to 5.4 or 5.6 on the terminal. That's probably the direction we're going back to. I, could we get to six or above? You know, yeah, it's possible, but I, I think somewhere between here and and say five seventy five to six will be sufficiently restrictive. Certainly, we are seeing evidence that past hikes are working on at least parts of the economy, and so I'm not convinced that they need to kind of really ramp things back up. But yes, we're essentially saying if some of the bank stress and other issues have dissipated, then the Fed should fill that gap. Two or three months ago, they thought that gap would be somewhere around five and a half, maybe a little above. I think that still holds. I think something that has really been unique about this cycle clearly is inflation. And the disinflationary process is happening, but I like to say it's a lot easier to get from 9% down to 5% than from 5% right. back to 2%. Right. And I think one of the things that really has come out of the recent tsunami of Fed speak is markets pricing out the rate cuts. 
And I, you know, this is really looking around the corner right now. But when you think about the Fed rate hike cycle kind of winding down clearly as it ends, I feel like markets rush to price in the next leg down in the Fed funds rate. To me, this is looking like it would be a very different process. It wouldn't be the elevator down that they usually take with rates. Correct, Do right. you have any thoughts about how that could evolve? Well, I think that's right. So in some, the balance leaves it between the how high and the how long. I think you know the, both of that is is in this discussion. And I, I think you're right that maybe markets didn't baseline expect cuts this year, but in distributions of outcomes, you had to put a lot more weight on that hard landing. And if the external risk backdrop is improving – those cuts come out as as a result. Um, so yes, I, I think if if you're not, you know, if they're looking to kind of fine tune where the policy stance is, some of that is the the how long. And I think markets have done it correctly in the sense of first you price out those cuts, we'll debate on on how high things go. So the cycle could be a little different one where where the where you're right that getting inflation down to the mid fours has been relatively easy. They've gotten help from other spaces. How we get that down to two is still in front of us. So do you think that good news is still good news, as Peter Shea was saying? No, I think good news is back to being bad news. Because good, good news, if you include the risk backdrop, meaning less risk, then you, you should, in theory, get more Fed hikes. So I think we're back to the, the good news is bad news world. Laura? How much do you – there's been a lot made about, obviously, corporate margins have been relatively healthy throughout mm-hmm. this period, and they're starting to narrow somewhat. There's been talk that that is now one of the factors that's adding to inflation, the fact that companies are being a little bit um, you know, greedy about not wanting to – clearly, you know, as, as would make sense for their own shareholder value, not wanting to give up that margin. How much is that now a driver of inflation, or is it still a reaction to the strong economy? I think it's a little I think it's fair to say it's both. And what I would say is what has surprised us most about the inflation forecast is how little goods prices have come down. I think we are all kind of on the shelter story and that pass through seems to be happening as as we would have expected. But to me, the big shock is you have these big durables items, new cars, used cars, household appliances and so forth. They've been basically flat. And I think that's what you're seeing is that, you know, margins have been getting squeezed and and then then they got widened out and I think corporate corporations are deciding well what is the elasticity of a price cut at this point in in time so I think the strong economy has meant goods prices have not come down as much as we had expected conversely to open up room for goods prices to come down and for inflation to get back to two, you do have to moderate demand. And that's why I think good news is bad news. I have a question for both of you guys. Um, <laughs> since you both have uh, traders at your offices, uh, the anecdotal uh, information I get is that, yeah, um, Fed funds futures have been very volatile. They've been up and down about cuts and things like that. But traders have not. The, the expectation on the desks is that the Fed is going to stay high and maybe even raise rates again. So we're getting conflicting signals from the trading desks and from the Fed funds futures. I think that's fair. I think you know there's some people who will play that game more than than others, and some have different time horizons. I, I'd say the majority of investors that I meet with, so let's say two out of three, are on board with the higher for longer and likely no cuts this year out of the Fed. However, there is a there's a group of investors I meet with who are very concerned about bank stress and see that as being more material and people like me are too complacent about it. And they say, well, the lags are going to hit later this year. 
and the game is up in effect and we'll know it when when we see it. But I, I would say yes, more there are more than not saying higher for longer seems to be where we're going. I would say the same thing. I think that on our desk, there's, you know, a mix that reflects the the futures curve. And there are, there's a vocal group that is perhaps smaller in number that really feels like the Fed's raising rates. They're going to break something. We are going to see yields come down very sharply should the economy slow. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have this sort of fight in the sort of one year ahead Fed rate expectations. But a lot of us are still in kind of I think a camp that they're not going to be have the room for that. In the past three weeks, it seems like there has been a shift in tone where a soft landing has suddenly become more likely than it had been. It's back. How long is it going to stay back, Mike? Until we get guidance that the funds rate's going closer (laughs) to six. (laughs) Okay, so you think the Fed's going to break it? You think that that's well? No, I I mean I, I think. The soft landing can't be ruled out. I don't think it's ever been able to been ruled out entirely. I just think, as as you mentioned in in the lead in, history suggests it's more likely than not when the Fed moves this quickly into counterinflation, you do have to pay a price at some point. So I think we're all in the you know okay that that outcome's more likely than not. But it's a it's a very different cycle, and I don't think we can entirely rule out that they kind of hit it just right. So it is back on the table at the moment. Because the risk backdrop has has improved. Now we'll see about the other direction. Uh, I feel like it always looks like a soft landing until all of a sudden you're yeah, faced well, out in a recession. I mean, we're in a we're in a recession <laughs> forecast, so I, I can't. I'm not, you know, going to talk away from what the view is <laughs> from your, from your um, point of view. Yeah, Carry but um, I just just you know, yeah. I so I still think in the end it's more likely than not we'll have to you know pay some price to bring inflation down and. Given what I said about goods prices being firm and, and the consumer being resilient, you have to lean against that. Will Halloween have <laughs> a, a, a recession? View? Is you know when your neighbor loses his jobs. A depression is, is when, when you when lose your that's job. Right. And I guess the soft landing is when bonuses are cut on Wall Street. <laughs> 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 Michael Gaffin of Bank of America Securities. Thank you so much. Ellen Wald, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and author of Saudi Inc. After that one million barrel cut that Saudi Arabia agreed to unilaterally go through with, even though the United Arab Emirates, most notably, came out and didn't have to make a similar cut. Ellen, what do you make of this announcement and frankly, the sort of lackluster response in markets? Yeah, I'm not surprised by the somewhat lackluster response, especially because a one million barrel a day cut across the board from OPEC plus was being tossed around uh, over the weekend. And so the fact that this that didn't come through and instead we've got this Saudi uh, lollipop of a one million barrel a day cut unilaterally on their part uh, for the month of July, I think that the market sees that as as less significant uh, than a uh, across the board OPEC plus cut um, extended maybe for six months. I do think though that um, the market is a bit downplaying the significance of um, the deal that renegotiated the baseline production uh, levels because starting in 2024, these are going to come into effect. And that's really going to bring more clarity to the market because one of the issues that we've seen with OPEC is that they push through a 1 million barrel a day cut, but it's not actually going to be 1 million barrels a day uh, because a lot of the countries that are participating are not actually producing up to their max level. Their capacity is down. Down because their production quotas are you know back from 2016 and now 
now it's it's 2023 and, and things are really different. So I think that once these new baselines come into effect, um, OPEC's production rates will actually be more reflective of of what's actually on the market and the market will appreciate uh, that that clarity. Do we have a sense, Ellen, of just how much demand has actually fallen off versus the forward look of demand potentially falling off Is there, if there's a recession? In other words, are prices accurately reflecting the slowdown that some people are saying is transpiring in China and other places? I think prices are reflecting the fear of the slowdown much more than what any actual slowdown is, mostly because we're not really sure what that slowdown is going to be. We also don't know how China is going to react to this. Are, is China going to push through some kind of big manufacturing stimulus that um, that will push up demand? Plus, there's always this kind of fake, I don't want to say it's fake, but China tends to buy more crude oil when it's cheap to put into storage, maybe for, for rainy days or, or whatnot, or just to resell, uh, to process and resell around Asia. And so there's a lot of cheap crude available on the market now. Uh, Russia is a huge uh, uh, purveyor of it, but also there's, um, you know, Iranian and Venezuelan crude that China can get. And so um, they may actually be buying more crude oil than they're using. And that's kind of papering over um, any kind of demand issues that um, that we're seeing. Yeah, one big wild card I've been wondering about, and maybe you've got some good color on, is what's going on with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve? Where do we stand? What are you hearing about us trying to rebuild that? Because to me, it's a bit concerning that it got so low and it's staying this low and we're not really taking advantage of lower oil prices. Yeah, that's that's a big issue. I think part of it is that um, maintenance needs to be done in some of the storage facilities. And so the government is hesitant to start making purchases before it's completed those those maintenance things, which, you know, is a is is an issue. And I, and I do, do think needs to be addressed. But I don't think that um, I do think that they can purchase more than they are. And the fact that they're not, uh, particularly when prices are in a good spot, is concerning. Um, I also think that when they do start to purchase finally, which I do believe they will, um, whether it's this uh, particular government or uh, you know another administration, we are going to see a big bump in demand. And that's going to push prices up because this is going to be a, a lot of crude purchases. And I don't think that they're prepared to do this. Uh, and I also think that OPEC is kind of waiting for this to happen. They got uh, uh, very upset when the government basically, when, when the Biden administration basically said, hey, we're going to start purchasing when it hits this level. And then they didn't. And OPEC was was like, well, we were expecting this demand bump. Now we're going to have to cut supply. And uh, I think they were burned and, and a bit upset about that. Interesting. Ellen Wald of the Atlantic Council. Thank you. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. card. 
Ed Mills, Washington Policy Analyst at Raymond James, joining us now. That is a good question. The momentum the Republicans may have from the debt ceiling resolution, as it were, even if the president, as he is right now, trying to take credit for coming up with some sort of bipartisan agreement. I would actually argue what you saw out of this that's underreported, Lisa, is that what was the big part of this from a D.C. perspective is there were a number of different landmines that could have gone off between now and the election that, that got diffused. I think some of those are going to be beneficial to Republicans, but arguably more beneficial to President Biden. Um, the threat of a government shutdown has come down. What they did was pull forward the discussion of exactly how much should defense get, how much should non-defense get. They diffused the issue on IRS uh, kind of budgets and audits. Uh, that could have been a huge presidential issue next year. They diffused the issue of student loans. Now we could talk about the market impact of people starting to repay their student loans come September. But I would argue kind of, yes, McCarthy comes out of this uh, arguably stronger. But the Biden team was looking at the next couple of months, the next two years, and saying, what are some of the things that could be really problematic for us? And could we get it as part of this deal as little as possible that we'd have to give to fuse those future time bombs? And I think that's why they think this is truly a big win for them. The problem for President Biden is that the Washington eco chamber right now and the political sort of talk shows are focusing more on his age than they are about coming to some sort of bipartisan agreement. And he's trying to say, look, I'm the one who can get these things across. Why can't you give me credit? And they all say, well, you tripped over a sandbag. How is he going to get out from under that? I don't know, Lisa. I mean, his age is his age. I think what he is trying to do and what the Biden team continues to kind of focus on is his accomplishments in that what was the other big winner out of this debt ceiling debate was the middle held. What we have seen kind of through legislative success under the Biden administration is that ne not necessarily the extremes win. Um, kind of the last couple of years, it was Joe Manchin moving the party more to the center to the extent he had possible. And then with this, he's saying, look, the reason why you try to keep him as president his argument would be is that you get the middle, which is where most of the country is, to get those wins. And he put, points to the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the Chips and Science Act, in that kind of fight with U.S. and China. I do think that the next thing that they want to do is something on energy permitting reform more than what they just did in a real focus on critical minerals as well as supply chains as the top part of their agenda, trying to see if they can, can build on those bipartisan wins. So, Ed, I thought that was really interesting analysis about avoiding the landmines and kind of diffusing some of those over the next two years. But one of the things that struck me is that throughout this whole debt ceiling drama, Biden's unpopularity and the polling data rose. So I come back to the issue, all these you know things that he's accomplished legislatively. How sellable are those to the American public? How well is he going to be able to actually campaign on those? Yeah, Lori, it's a good question. I think that one of the things that we are looking at in polling data here at Raymond James is that uh, in our current environment, any political figure out there has a ceiling, not much more than 50%. So we don't look at it in the past where we had presidents with 60, 70% approval ratings. That's kind of a bygone error. Um, where we saw the downdraft in his polling numbers largely came from some of his supporters um, now that there is an accomplishment, a deal sign, a, a, something averted, um, we would expect that probably to tick up. 
where it goes from here, yeah, I can't predict the future in that regard. Um, but you know, the key for Republicans is getting some of the folks that supported Joe Biden in 2020 to come over to their camp. Um, we will try to see kind of if anyone can do that. Uh, but ultimately, what Joe Biden always says is, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. Ultimately, this is going to be about a choice. And so it's as much about Joe Biden as it is who Republicans choose and or if there's a third party candidate. So uh, the 2024 election is going to be a big wild card for the market uh, for the rest of this year and especially obviously next year. Just real quick here, Ed, over the weekend talking about who he's gonna run against. Eight candidates went to this Iowa State Fair and were trying to appeal to the Republican constituents, eight potential Republican nominees. President, former President Trump not among them. What did you make of that? He was not there in one of the sort of lead ups to the announcements that just keep on coming. I think that you look at the polling data and uh, former President Trump is in the lead. I think for the time being, he's happy to kind of let that be the case. Um, what we are going to ultimately see is how many other people get into this race and does that diffuse the non-Trump vote or is he able to consolidate and keep that power and, and work probably still several months out before we have any true inkling as to where this uh, Republican race is going to go. Ed Mills of Raymond James, thank you so much. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.